Hey, it's Mike Birbiglia. I, uh, I I dropped this final fifth of five episodes of the Limited Old Ones podcast into your feed a little early, just in case you're doing some holiday road trips and you want to listen to them all back to back. And uh, and 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 keep this by the way in your feed because there's going to be a sixth bonus episode that announces like a New York City run and some more cities. I think knock on wood, some some European cities. And uh, and and this is um, this is a really fun episode. This is with Judd Apatow. We talk a lot. We talk about Thank God for Jokes, which is a Netflix special that you can watch now if you have someone's password. And we talk about religion a lot. So it's uh, it's provocative. It's it's uh, Judd is a really really smart and fascinating person with a with an interesting upbringing. And uh, and I hope you like it. This is the old ones. Today, I'm so lucky to be with one of the great all-time comedy filmmakers and stand-up comedians, Judd Apatow. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, basking in your former glory. (laughs) Agreed. It's a very self-involved premise. It's insane. It's having people to talk about you Mm -hmm. with you, which, let me say, I find it appealing to be here. I'm excited to be here. And the idea of doing it about my work, mm-hmm. less appealing. Is that right? Like to ask my friends to tell me what they think of Celtic Pride would, uh, <laughs> I don't know how long it would be uh, amusing for, for me. Sure. For the audience, maybe endlessly amusing. We're talking about Thank God for Jokes, which is a special. It premiered on Netflix in February of 2017, this year. You're already looking back on it. I'm looking back. It's a, retros- <laughs> it's a retrospective. I'm going to start looking back on The Big Sick, which came out two weeks ago. <laughs> the Big Sick is so good. Are you going to play clips of these albums? Yeah, I'm going to play some clips. Okay. But jokes are something I think about all the time. They're a volatile type of speech. I mean, you just look at the news, the Charlie Hebdo incident two years ago where these 10 satirists were killed for drawing a disrespectful cartoon of Muhammad, who the killers believed to be the prophet of Allah, their Lord and Savior, which, by the way, he might be. (laughs) I have no horse in that race. Uh, Muhammad seems like a nice guy. Uh, Jesus was popular with 12 dudes. Buddha's confusing. I'm pretty sure he's like an elephant or a sumo wrestler. The point is is that they, these were comedy writers like, like, like me, and they were murdered. And I was so shocked by this at the time. I remember talking to everybody about it. And, I, and, and my mother said to me, she goes, well, can't these writers just write jokes that aren't offensive? And I thought about it, and I said, I'm not sure that's possible. Because all jokes are offensive to someone. Did you have a personal response to that when that incident occurred? It's funny because I do a joke that's a little bit sideways about that, where I say that Jewish people don't mind if you draw them <laughs> or draw our <laughs> gods. And I say, and we should be mad because any good drawing of a Jewish person is inherently anti-Semitic. Right. <laughs> I love that joke. And that's why uh, there are no caricature artists at bar mitzvahs. That's right. <laughs> uh, but... I used to do a thing on stage where I told the crowd I was going to draw Muhammad. 
and I would take out a piece of paper. How many years ago was this? Like around two- around when that incident oh, okay. happened. Yeah. And I would take out a piece of paper and a pen, and I would <laughs> I would put the pen to the paper, and the place just the tension. In the oh, room. that's a great idea. And I realized, I said, you know, anything I draw right now, I guess is considered Muhammad. Because you're saying it. It could yeah. be a triangle. Sure. It could be one straight line. Right, you're just a bad artist. <laughs> and I wouldn't do it, but it was fascinating to see how upsetting it was to people. And it's a very interesting question, which is when other religions make a rule right. and expect you to follow it. But this idea of uh, satirical cartoons or or drawings is a, a whole new area, and it's it is interesting how much we expect other people to follow our rules. Yeah, and it was a, a very scary, uh, horrifying moment, and I, I do remember it it well, and I think it's something that we're dealing with in every possible way. I mean, that's really what ISIS is all about, you know, coming into a a city and saying, from now on, you're going to follow our rules. And in stand-up, I talk about it a little bit and say, that's what I like about Jewish people is we don't want anybody else to join. (laughs) We're not about making you join. We're not making about making you follow our rules. We're an exclusive club. We won't let you follow our rules. (laughs) I love that all of your comedy leads back to that's what I like about Jewish yes. people. And here's the funny thing. And then you slam Jewish people. So how did you approach trying to write humor about the Charlie, the Charlie Hebdo, Hebdo thing? Incident? I mean, I, I'd done My Girlfriend's Boyfriend and Sleepwalk With Me, which were very narrative-driven specials and, and shows. And I was like, I just want to tell jokes. I just want to tell, like, quick jokes and stories. And then the Charlie Hebdo thing happened around that time, and I was reading about it and just going, like, man, it's it's a real interesting symbol for, like— this fork in the road we're having culturally. Because a lot of people, if you talk about Charlie Hebdo, it's delicate because a lot of people will say, like, those cartoons are offensive, and I won't fight anybody on that. But I'll also say South Park's offensive. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, like comedy is offensive well, you, sometimes. Don Rickles uh, is offensive. You can't take offensiveness out of the human experience. I don't think so. And so that's what's tricky about it. But, you know, when you believe in a God that's making judgments and you're following ideas that were created thousands of years ago and have been reinterpreted yeah. for political reasons by a lot of different people, you get very far probably from the original truth of it. It just makes me sad. It makes me sad that anyone lives on this earth believes in some idea and thinks that you can kill people uh, for offending them or for any reason, really. I, I, I find it tragic, and that's why I hate when our government or political leaders are so proud of their religion. You're not allowed to admit that you're no. not religious. And so if you look at all his senators and congressmen, they all pretend to be religious, but no, I, I bet you like a quarter of them are. And the three quarters are full of shit. But you have some political references on the album, and you you uh, have some very funny material about uh, Jesus returning, how you're not looking <laughs> yeah, yeah. forward to that. Do we really want him to come again? Like, if he comes again, he's going to be so mad. <laughs> he's going to be like, I don't understand. How come these people are so rich and these people are so poor? Because he's Jewish, right? Like, he'd have a Jewish outfit. 
how come these people have thousands of loaves and these people have half a loaf? Because he's a socialist. He's a Jewish socialist. He's the least popular modern demographic, especially with Christians. I mean... Did you go to Temple when you were a kid in Long Island? Only when I was forced to attend Friends Bar Mitzvahs. And I can't <laughs> say I, I can't say I, I paid a lot of attention. But when I was about eleven or twelve, and kids were going to Hebrew school, I asked my parents if I could get Bar Mitzvah, and they said, "No, you just want the money." <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't religious at all, and not only were they not religious. They never discussed religion. They didn't give me a replacement for religion. They didn't even say, let's be charitable or kind. We were a void of talk of the soul. But that, that's interesting to me, though, because you, the, what you became, and I know you personally, you're a really good person. Thank you. And sometimes I, I attribute, I, I'd like to think I'm a, a, a good person or at least a decent person trying to be a decent person. Sometimes I go, well, maybe it was my Christian upbringing. I went to Catholic school and blah, blah. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But it's almost, you're a, you're a case study for you, you don't need religion. I, you know, was friendly with Harold Ramis. I produced a movie he was in, and he had a very simple philosophy, which is if you don't believe in God, then you get to decide for yourself what kind of person you want to be. And he said, you know, I sat down one day and said, you know, do I want to be evil? No. Is it better to be a nice person? Than a jerk, yeah. I, I choose a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes that's all it is. But people like Ramus and Shanling had a big impact on me. And then, and probably the biggest thing that happened to me is I wanted to get near comedians. Yeah. And so when I was at college, I heard that they were going to do the live aid of comedians called Comic Relief. Yeah. So I called up and I said, I'm a student at USC. I book the concerts at USC. I'll do anything for free. Yeah. And then a few months later, they called and said, you can work here. And I was only interested in getting near Robin Williams. That's, so That's the only reason why I was doing it. It's one thing to see specials of Robin Williams, which I grew up on. But to I, I was lucky enough to do a couple benefits, charity benefits and things before he passed away. To see him live is like nothing you could ever imagine in comedy. Yeah, he would blow the roof off the place. I, I did a show with him where it was, and we'll get back to your story in a second, but I did a show for Wounded Warriors Project. It was a, a lot of soldiers in the audience and family at Beacon Theater. And it was like, it was like Ricky Gervais, like Bruce Springsteen, like the, <laughs> the craziest lineup of people you could ever imagine. And Patton Oswalt, you know, like, and and then we're all, everyone, you go like, oh yeah, everyone's good. And then Robin Williams comes on, and you just go, oh, we're all hacks. <laughs> like, we're all just trying to do that. I feel like he made so much comedy that people don't value him enough. Because yeah. he was so funny for so long yeah. that people stopped appreciating how ridiculously hilarious he was. And if you go online and just go down the wormhole, yeah, there's some stuff of him, like, in Iraq— talking to troops. Yeah. You cannot believe how funny he is. He's an extremely generous person, speaking of generous people. I mean, he was, I remember being at that event with the, for the Wounded Warriors, and he would just talk to every soldier. He would talk to every family member, and he would be the Robin Williams they'd want him to be. Wow. And 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 I found it to be so heartening. And, and for me, like, 
aspirational. It was like, oh, I want to be like that. Yes. I would like to be someday to aspire to something like that. You know who else is like that whenever I've seen him do charity stuff is John Stewart. Mm-hmm. John Stewart, like, really just brings it to people. Yeah, Springsteen is like that. And Springsteen's like that. I was at a benefit, and afterwards there was a small cocktail party, and I watched him move through the cocktail party and just make a point of giving everyone there a moment with him. Yeah. And it was very thoughtful but clear that he knew what he was doing. Knew what he was doing, yeah. I'm going to walk in here, and I'm going to say hi to every single person here. And... It's it, that's exhausting. I mean, to really give full focus oh, to people, yeah. especially in a, a at a charity event where there's people who really have suffered, yeah. And to to be present for them is a is very taxing. And I know on some level you could go like, yeah, well, you're him. What do you care? Right. But no, it's to really love someone and be present and feel their pain. Sure. And to do that for your whole career, not just that night, right? You're just there, and that's what Robin Williams was doing for the homeless. With comic yes, relief. Yes, with comic relief. So you ha- you booked him. I, I was just there to be like a PA. Okay. And I started putting together concerts around the country where the money would go to the homeless. Gotcha. For, for comic relief. But I met this guy, Dennis Alba, and his job was to take care of the homeless and to figure out how to spend the money. Sure. And I was 18 years old, and he just talked about charity, talked about helping other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talked about the homeless, and he would just say, you know, Judd, when you walk down the street, just just talk to them. Yeah. He said the hardest part about being homeless is no one looks at you. Yeah. And you feel like you're in the twilight zone because people just walk yeah, by you all day long like you're an invisible, like you're worthless. Yeah. Goes, so if you just stop and say, how are you doing? Yeah. And connect, it's very powerful to homeless people. Yeah. And it's very helpful. And, and, and that gave me some sense of— uh, spirituality, that that's what life is about. Life is about looking the homeless man in the eye or the homeless woman and saying, how are you doing today? Yeah. Some some things are inspiring, like Gary Shandling was in this terrible car accident when he was like 27 years old, and he said that his body, like he rose above his body during this operation and that he... He saw a light, right, and then he heard a voice that said, "Do you want to continue living Gary Shandling's life?" Oh my gosh! And he said yes. And then suddenly he was back in his body, and he came out of surgery. Wow! And he said he remembered everything. And I asked him about it once, and I said, "But how do you know it wasn't just a dream?" And he's like, "Judd, I know what a dream is." <laughs> wow! And I have to say, that's one of the other things that keeps me going. Is Gary Shandling told me he got yeah, a little beak at the other side. Yeah, and uh, and that's enough to try to be nice to other people as much as we can. You, One thing I like about your this special is that you are not always nice, <laughs> and then sure. sometimes you might even be terrible sure. in your behavior. Sure, and I think that's the fun thing about watching you on stage. And I don't know how you describe your stage persona. Sure, yeah, but. It definitely, it's like a sweet presentation, but also covering many awful choices. Absolutely. I mean, I try to be as transparent as possible. I mean, the new show I'm touring with, I tell a story that I won't give away, but it's like, it's so objectionable that, like, my brother Joe, who works with me closely, like, <laughs> is just like, don't tell that story. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're a jerk. Yes. You're, like, such a loser in that story. And, and yeah, I think that that's actually important in comedy. And sometimes it's lost that idea of, like, of, like, that 
we have to actually admit that we're wrong sometimes. Yes, yeah, most of the time, right? Yeah. You know what my mom taught me, which is I think one of the best qualities that one can teach children at all, is like, you can be the joke. Yeah. You can be comfortable being the I mean, I have the line in Thank God for Jokes. It's like, it's like you're the joke later and later. And it's yes. like, I'm the joke later. Yeah. It's like, I think if you don't get to a point where you're willing to be the joke, there's something about it that's missing. Like when I watch a comedian and I'm like, oh, they're funny, but like they don't understand like what's funny about them. Sure, sure. And like even the David O. Russell story, like I go out of my way to be like, like, I'm not right that I told this joke about David yes. Russell at this award show, but I stand by the joke. I'm going to share with you this joke I told at the Gotham Awards. Um, David O. Russell, like I said, is, is one of my favorite directors, but infamously uh, shouted at Lily Tomlin on the set of I Heart Huckabee's many years ago. You might have seen it on YouTube because it was, it was caught on tape, it was put on YouTube, it was seen by millions of people. If you haven't seen it, there is nothing I could do to properly convey just how extreme this rant was other than typing out a transcript of what he said, printing it out, and just reading it to you. So they're on the set of this movie, and they're in this classroom area, and, uh, and it's Dustin Hoffman and Lily Tomlin and Jason Schwartzman, and in between takes, David O. Russell comes out and he says to Lily Tomlin, and I quote, he says, I'm just trying to fucking help you, you understand me? I'm just trying to be a fucking collaborator. I'm just trying to help you figure out the fucking picture, okay, bitch? I'm not here to be fucking yelled at. I've been working this thing for three fucking years to have some fucking cunt yell at me in front of the crew when I'm trying to help you, bitch. <laughs> So I thought I should talk about that on stage because, <laughs> because if comedy is tragedy plus time, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so I said, David O. Russell's here. I, I was, he's about where you are, about third row. I said, one of my favorite directors, known for going to extremes to get exactly what he wants. The great director, Ilya Kazan, once said, you do whatever it takes to get the shot. David O. Russell once said, I'm just trying to fucking help you, you understand me? I'm just being a fucking collaborator. I'm just trying to help you figure out the fucking picture, okay, bitch? I'm not here to be fucking yelled at. I didn't work in this thing for three fucking years to have some fucking cunt yell at me in front of the crew when I'm trying to help you, bitch. Two great directors basically saying the same thing. Well, here's what I find fascinating about it is I love that you really thought about it. Yeah. So you're considering reading the transcript of David O. Russell <laughs> screaming and cursing at Lily Tomlin in front of David O. Russell on a night when he's being <laughs> given an award. So this is his special night. No, I know. And that you talked about it with people and decided in your own mind that it's okay, which makes me think, would I have done it? Would yeah. I have read it to him? And I have to say, no. I would not have 
done it. Yeah. I love that you did do it, but I also think it's so horrifyingly wrong. Right. It's such a misjudgment, but I know how that happens because— you get excited about a comedic idea, and you know you're going <laughs> to pop the room, and you know it's crazy. And I have had ideas like that. Yeah. But people have gotten me to not do them. And that is an interesting part of this current climate with Trump, which is who can you make fun of? Right. What, what can you joke about? Right. Uh, uh, you know, like, say this guy did steal an election. Can I call him terrible names? Can I curse right. at him? And I think we're all figuring out, when are we allowed to call people out? Sure. Because we're all very polite. And that's what I like about the bit. It's so impolite. <laughs> it's so yeah. not how people behave in show business. And it's so funny coming from you, who seems so nice, but really isn't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but here's a, a, an interesting question. So you do the bit, in front of David O. Russell. And then he's furious. And backstage, he's continuing Not happy, to yeah. be furious. And we could also debate, is what you did to him worse than what he did to Lily Tomlin? Sure. Good right? question. Like, Fair question. Is that worse? Like, <laughs> how you called him out on his own actual behavior versus just— That's a really good point. So we don't know. Yeah. So then you do the special on Netflix— any more feedback from David O. Russell World? Nothing from Camp O. Russell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and do I, you care? I did that show, 100 performances off-Broadway at the Bleecker Street Theater, and I dreamed that he would show up one night. <laughs> it's like I left a seat for Elijah in the audience <laughs> for David O. Russell. And, and uh, I really wished he would have come. I felt like he would have enjoyed it. I feel like he would have enjoyed the show, and I feel like we— could have had a pretty good conversation because I'm a really big fan of his. I know all of his work. Yes. And and I'm a huge cinephile. Was there any hostility in your heart when you did it? No hostility, but I called Nathan Lane the night before I did the joke, who I who is a great uh, comedic mind and performer. Most people know him as a comedic performer, but actually he's got a great comedy brain. And I said, I told him the joke, and he laughed really hard. And I go, can I tell that on stage when I know he'll be there? And it won't go well between yes. us. And he said, if you have a joke that's that funny and it's all so true, you can't not say it. I only had one experience like that, which yeah. is I was receiving an award from a kind of a, let's call it a new award show. Yeah, And so new award show, but, you know, People were showing up. Yeah. And Affleck coming to show. Yeah, Get sure. his Argo Award. Yeah, no, became on the circuit probably. You know, just, yeah. It, it, and so they have this show. And it's hosted by uh, one of the entertainment reporter hosts. Uh, I believe it was Nancy O'Dell. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm so bored during the show. And I have to accept with an Nancy award O'Dell. later. Yeah. I'm not bored with Nancy, but just, I don't know. I'm by myself. I don't even think anyone came with me. And I... Uh, as the show went on, I decided I my speech is going to be my notes as a producer on what's wrong with this award oh show. So I took copious notes of every moment of the entire show. Oh, my god! And then when it was my turn to accept some comedy award, I said, I'm a producer and I see some problems with this award show. I'd like it to be better next year. And I ran through it. I criticized everyone who accepted an award, everyone who gave an award, every video package. That must I, have done pretty well. Oh, no, it murdered yeah, I bet it, the Yeah, room. yeah, because anything that's 
a comedic critique of something happening in the room is gold. And it was so funny. And I remember I was just making some joke about Ben. Ben, I was just talking about like that Ben Affleck. And I kept, then I'm like, is it Affleck? Is it Affleck? I'm still confused. Oh, I know this I, joke. To me, Demi Moore. I'm, I'm, I still don't get these right. But Ben made it very clear that it's not Iran. It's Iran. Because oh, when he won his awards, he kept saying like, you know, when we were in Iran, and uh, and but I'm the kind of person that goes home and goes, I'm such a jerk. What am I giving all these people a, yeah. a hard time for? And I have a, a lot of joke regret. So when I make fun of people. Even now, I'm about to shoot a Netflix special in two yeah. weeks in Montreal. I have a, two or three references to people. I just think, ah, they're megastars, but I don't know. I see them places. I'm never that comfortable uh, with anyone I might bump into uh, in in a public but you place. you got to go for it. You do have to go for it. Like, I had a lot of George Clooney references yeah. in my movies. Because I love him. I really am a giant fan. of course. And Leslie had this run in This Is 40 where she's getting worked out by her trainer, Jason Siegel. Jason Siegel, Siegel yeah. And he's ta talking about how he wants to be single like George Clooney and yeah. how happy George Clooney is. And Leslie's like, I don't think he's happy. I think he has sad eyes. <laughs> he seems sad. And he's like, he's not sad. And he's like, thinks he's just a swinger and is happy. And they have this conversation debating, is George Clooney sad? Sure. And I would see him places. He never mentioned it. He's always so nice. And then he, he got married and now he just had a baby. And he seems really happy. He doesn't have oh, that's sad really eyes. Interesting. But I was, but I'd be uncomfortable. I'd bump into him, and he would. I would always assume he never saw it. But I'm neurotic enough to really go. I, I meant it with love, George. But isn't that all comedy is? Is we're just we're going after things, whether they're ideas or people or things that we are kind of annoyed by. Yes, and we can't. Be loyal to anyone or anything. I guess. I mean, I'm, that's what I'm trying to figure out now because I haven't done a special before, and now it's all getting locked in. But that's why that's why comedy specials aren't usually done by people of your stature in show business. <laughs> yes. Because people like me, I can afford to make a joke at the expense of David O. Russell. I wasn't probably going to be in a David O. Russell film anyway. I'd love to be, but I probably won't be. And but you actually. You could work with George Clooney next year. You could work with Ben Affleck. Like you, yes. it, and so you have to run the risk of being like, well, I guess that that bridge is burned. Yeah. Now, is it Affleck or Affleck? <laughs> I don't know. Do we know? Wait, I had a question which is about <laughs> Leslie, which is, do you, do you, because I have the Massachusetts story about my wife, about having inside jokes that are funny to you and your wife and no one else. I think jokes at their best have the ability to make us all feel closer to one another. I mean, I think one of the, my favorite things about marriage is that you can share jokes with your wife or husband that are funny to you and that person and no one else other than maybe your cat. Because when you have a cat, your barometer for humor <laughs> out the window. <laughs> well, last summer, my wife and I went on a trip to Massachusetts and I called it Catsachusetts, which is not funny, but in our house, what's the joke of the year? <laughs> I was like, we're going to Catsachusetts. My wife was like, ah! I was like, ah! Our cow was like, ah! 
Jen and I were going over one today about Ricky Gervais because I did something with Ricky Gervais recently, and and she was like, "You got to explain to him that we use the term you having a laugh around the house, which <laughs> yes. is from extras. It's yes. like his his character's catchphrase in like his crappy sitcom." Well, I have a Ricky Gervais story of again feeling weird about a bit. Ricky Gervais did the Golden Globes. Yes. And then a few weeks later, I hosted the Producers Guild Awards. Mm -hmm. And as a joke, my monologue was a joke-for-joke response to his monologue. Oh, wow. And I basically explained that every joke of his was factually incorrect and the wrong position on the subject. Oh, my God. And so he made some jokes saying, you know, like, Cher hasn't had a hit since 1972. And so I just listed all of her hits straight into the 90s. (laughs) And and then he slammed Tom Cruise for Scientology. Then I told a long story about meeting Tom Cruise and his son at his house once and how— how polite his son was oh and how his, his son was like, want me to take out the garbage, Dad? I love you, Dad. I'll, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. And I thought, I, I wish my kids were that polite. Maybe they should be Scientologists. And I just, every position. That's I, your I David, the By the way, way, that's your David O. Russell story right there. And so then people would say to me every once in a while, you know, do you not like Ricky Gervais? I go, no, he's like one of my favorites of all time. Yeah. I think extras, and I'm not joking, makes me laugh harder me too. out loud than any television series ever. Like, in, in terms of laughing. I was literally talking about it with my wife today, and we were saying the final episode is a classic film yes. for all time. Sure. It's like film, television, it's everything. How about the David Bowie sequence? The David Bowie sequence, the, the Patrick, tiny little fat man The Patrick song. Stewart episode. And if so, people are listening to this, and they have not dug into this, the Ricky Gervais series extras— you have something in store for you. Yeah, no, it's incredible. It is gold. And I didn't do the response monologue because I had any issue with him. I just watched his monologue and thought, I think he's taking shots at people who don't deserve it. Yes. And it didn't bother me. I wasn't mad about it. I just thought, oh, it'd be funny to comment about that because he's so rough on everybody. Of course. Why can't you be a little rough on him? Oh, absolutely. Now, I also enjoyed the... The bit on your record about uh, getting pulled over. I remember this rock bottom moment where I'm driving back from a comedy club in New Jersey to my air mattress in Queens, and this cop just points at me and waves me over. When you're broke, cops will pull you over if you have a crappy car just to see what else you got going wrong, you know. And uh, uh, he says license and registration. As I'm pulling out my license, I'm realizing it's expired by three weeks. And I had that moment where I think, well, should I preface this conversation with this key piece of information? Like, you're not gonna like this. You know what I mean? Just like, (laughs) same team, we both think I'm an idiot. And uh, (laughs) it was actually worse than just that. He came back and he goes, did you know that your license is suspended. And I did, yeah, I, w- I didn't even know what that meant. I was very naive. And so I, apparently I had an unpaid speeding ticket from high school. So I said to him, and I quote, I said, yes, <laughs> no. <laughs> Wait, what does suspended mean? And he said, please step out of the car. And, 
And I get out of the car. He says, you're under arrest. I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> he says, I'm sure of it. Have you been arrested? The only time I was arrested was I was drinking a wine cooler in Florida during spring break when I was performing at a the U.S. Comedy College competition wow. in the late 80s. And I literally wasn't drunk. I just was drinking like a Bartles and James wine cooler. And they were just getting like hundreds of kids into cars, probably just to make money for the yeah. city. And uh, and that was the only time. I I, I wish it was a, a mugshot that I could get. From I want to get Daytona. my. I, I tried to get my mugshot from Weehawk in New Jersey. I was I had no luck. My whole life is about not getting arrested. I always I was trying to write a bit about this. I just never wrote it about. As I get older, I think about all the things I'm never going to get to do. Yeah. And as I get older, I realize I'm not going to do it. I, 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 now I know it's not going to happen. Because when you're young, you think you could do anything. Yeah. But as I get older, like, I wish I could do all of it. Like, I want to kill a guy in prison. <laughs> I'd like to have that experience. I'd like to be the president. <laughs> I'd, if, I'd if like. We, if we want clickbait, by the way, that's our lead. That's our lead headline. Judd Apatow, colon. I want to murder a guy in prison. Well, to protect myself. Of course. No, of course. Self-defense. A a defense situation. And I I was trying to list all the things I'll never do. Yeah. That, you know, I'd like to uh, run across America. Yeah, yeah. But I won't. No, I hear you. There's so many things you don't... I'm hitting this point now. I'm 39 where I'm hoping, and I look at, like, your career and go, like, I hope I have my 40s like that. Like, you don't wanna, you think that you got a solid forties? Yeah, I mean, don't you think your forties were like a major sweet spot of your career? I think that you get to a point where you have both some experiences, some uh, stronger point of view, and technical ability. Technical ability; those things collide, and and you're ready to tell some. Stories. I'm always amazed when people can do it when they're young. I mean, Wes Anderson's movie Bottle Rocket, right out of the unbelievable, <laughs> out of the box, is unbelievable, and and it is shocking when people do things like that. Oh, absolutely. You know, I remember we did uh, a show in in L.A. and I opened up for you when you were working on yeah writing this Thank show God for jokes show yeah, and uh, Chris Gethard was also there. He opened up too, yeah, and uh, and that was the first time I heard you do all this material. I remember that. I, that was one of the first times I told the Muppet story. A few years ago, I got booked to perform with the Muppets, which is a great honor. You know, I, I, I grew up on the Muppets, and it was a Canadian television special hosted by them, and I had to follow Fozzie Bear. I'm watching Fozzie from the wings, and it's dawning on me, like, oh, this show isn't going to go well for me for a very specific reason. And when people go to see the Muppets, they don't want to see people. I just want to see more Muppets. <laughs> so Fozzie's killing, and then he's heckled off the stage by Stadler and Waldorf. That's the gay couple that lives in the balcony. <laughs> if that's not the case, I'm very confused. They go to theater seven nights a week, and they bitch about everything. I mean, what... <laughs> what are the clues here? And so... Sather and Waldorf heckle Fozzie, and then they introduce me, which is an insane precedent for hecklers. This idea that if a heckler defeats the comedian, they're now in charge of the show. 
So they introduce me and they're mean. That's like Stadler and Waldorf's thing. So one of them goes, this next guy walks in his sleep. Oh yeah, I like sleeping during his act. Ah! <laughs> Please welcome Mike Berbiglia. And I jog onto stage and I'm so flustered by being pre-heckled by these surreal puppets that I forgot to bring my stool and I get to the center and I look around, I go, ah, fuck. <laughs> I'll tell you who doesn't like the word fuck. People who have purchased tickets to see the Muppets. <laughs> and the Muppets. You have a Muppet story that is far more advanced than mine. <laughs> but you were in consideration for a voice? What happened was I was living with Adam Sandler, and we heard that Jim Henson was going to do a new TV show. He was producing a TV show. I auditioned along with Adam Sandler. And David <laughs> your, your life is so strange. Yeah, it's, and, and David Spade auditioned. I think Rob Schneider might have auditioned too. Wow. But me and Adam don't get it. And then a few, a few days later, I get a call. Jim Henson wants to buy all of your ideas for the show. Oh, my gosh. He likes really? your ideas for the show. He just doesn't want you because he thinks you lack warmth. Oh, my gosh. And that hurt in a way that is, I can't describe. And I, in stand-up, I say, that's like Mr. Rogers saying you don't deserve love. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, because I couldn't have loved him more. And then years later, I thought, there's no way Jim Henson wanted me to know that information or even no. said that. No Maybe way. it was just the casting director. I mean, I doubt Jim Henson said, let's go, let's get Judd on the phone right <laughs> now. And, uh, you know, hey, Judd, I just wanted you to know that you, uh, you're uh, not attractive enough to do this or unattractive enough to do it, and you lack warmth. Wow. I, I don't think that that happened. Uh, but at the time, it devastated me. And it, it really stayed with me. As an as an idea that I never considered. Do you think that what that's is why warmth? You, did you think that's why you veered away from stand up? Because oh, you were on uh, the Young Comedian special on HBO. Yes. You were like destined for like a Ray Romano, Jerry Seinfeld type of career where they're known for that. Yes, and I, I hate to say it; it sounds terrible, and it's not the only example of people discouraging me. And my wife had experiences where people said terrible things to her, and she just said, screw you, and just plowed forward and succeeded. I think that what Jim Henson did was he said the thing <laughs> that I was most afraid was true. Wow. Which is, I don't have charisma. He said, you lack warmth. But I took it as lack charisma or lack just being interesting. Oh, wow. And So it was like those two moments that sort of combined, maybe with some other things, for you to just go like, Maybe I should just be writing for comics and writing TV shows and movies. I also was so comfortable. I, you know, I could sit with Jim Carrey and write jokes and watch him do them, and he would murder. Yeah. And I thought, I don't think I'm ready to do that for myself. I don't know who I am the way I know who Roseanne is. And so when my acting 
I mean, my writing career took off when the Ben Stiller show took off. I just didn't have time to be a comedian because I was running a sketch show. Right. And then I thought, ah, the universe doesn't want me doing this. It wants me to be a writer. But it's funny because you've circled back now to doing stand-up. You're releasing a special. You're touring. It's almost like you found yourself and figured out who you were outside of stand-up. Yes. And now that you know... You're back in stand-up, and you're killing harder than when you did stand-up. Yeah, full-time. that's true. I had to make movies to figure out my act. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like, people, my new tour is called The New One, and a lot of people ask, like, what's it about? And I'm like, well, ideally, it's about everything. Yes. <laughs> it's about existence. And, and like, that, I feel like that's what sort of every show in stand-up should be. That's what I've been trying to figure out as I'm about to do a Netflix special is, is there any theme to the whole thing? Does anything hold it all together? I feel like the theme that holds it together is there's a truth to it about parenting and about just trying to make it work and do your best in light of the fact that, like, you have three, you know, a wife and three and two daughters. And it's like you're surrounded by women and you're trying to be cool and you're yeah. trying to, like— be the best dad and be the best husband and like you fuck up a lot and like yes. you just all it's all you can do. Yes, yeah, so just trying not to screw it up and not knowing if you're screwing up and not knowing if you'll ever know if you screwed it up. Yeah. What, like I always think if my kid gets divorced when she's 40, <laughs> is it my fault kind of? <laughs> Did I plan something in her head? Because you do start seeing how they reacted to your parenting and you do start seeing Oh, my kid's neurotic about that. Did she get it from me? <laughs> well, thanks for doing this. This is my friend and uh, one of the people I admire most and admired for years before I met you. And that's one of the cool things about show business is sometimes in rare, lucky circumstances, you meet and even work sometimes with people who you admire. Well, I so hope much. one day when I curse out one of my <laughs> actresses, you will read the transcript. I will gladly do that, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Jed Apatow. So this has been The Old Ones. What will happen now? We're at the end of The Old Ones universe. You can listen to them all now in a row, backwards for a secret message, and maybe, just maybe, there'll be more coming soon. Definitely keep in your feed. There's going to be a sixth bonus episode uh, with some announcements about New York City and maybe Europe and London. And uh, So if you like that, check out thenewone.com for tour dates. I've been to 25 cities with this new show. And in 2018, I'll be in La Jolla, California. There's a few seats left. An added second show in Boise. And then Salt Lake City, Grand Rapids, Ann Arbor. Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, an added show in Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary. Those are all first-time Canadian stops for me. See what you guys are all about. Then Aspen, Colorado, Moon Tower Fest in Austin, on sale, I think, in early part of the new year. The Mass Mocha Fest in North Adams, Massachusetts. The Old Ones is produced by myself along with Joe Berbiglia, Peter Salomon, and Johnny Levin. Edited by Daniel Spaventa. Associate producer Will Lupica. Sound mix by Kate Belinsky. Music by Roger Neal. Special thanks to Seth Barish, who directed Thank God for Jokes, and Mike Lavoy, who produced it at the Bleecker Street Theater. Jack Vaughn, Mike Berkowitz, Isaac Dunham, my wife Jennifer Stein, who's episode four of this series. People have been really kind about on iTunes. We appreciate it. Paul Ruest, Sirius XM. 
Very special thanks to Netflix, including my producers, Robbie Pra and Lisa Nishimura. Special thanks to Steve Wilson and our friends at Apple Podcasts. This interview was recorded by Ivan Kuryev at Argo Studio in New York City. My biggest thanks to Judd Apatow, whose new Netflix comedy special that you heard us talking about is on Netflix right now. It's called The Return. See you next time.